Well, it is really good to be back in Lynchburg. I have been gone for the last two and a half weeks. I took the longest vacation of my entire life. My wife gave this to me as a gift in 2020, and then COVID came. What a blessing. And so uh, I turned 50 in January 7th of 2020, and um, my wife gave me a trip of a lifetime. She gave me a trip to England to go to the Wimbledon tennis tournament, which we didn't actually end up going to. <laughs> uh, sold my tickets and paid for the vacation. But on top of that, uh, I got to go to the British Open as the final day of our trip. And, um, and it was an amazing trip. And I'm so grateful to my wife that she gave that to me. It's unfortunate we had to wait two years to do it. Uh, the good news is it had been paid for two years ago. So it was a pretty nice and relaxing trip and had a great time. And uh, I was so worried I would come back today speaking in an English accent because I've been working on it for the last two weeks, you know. And so if I say God, it's not out of habit. It's just because I've been working on it for two weeks. So I apologize about that. But it is good to be back. And I've been watching our services and <clears throat> listening to the messages out of 1 John. And now we arrive at 1 John chapter 5. I'm going to give you the first 13 verses today, and then Pastor Jonathan's going to wrap up this book next week as we study those last few verses in that chapter. But John's an interesting character. He, as you know, wrote 20% of the New Testament, five books in the New Testament, John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then the book of Revelation. What a history this man has. He was known as one of the sons of thunder. Jesus had an affectionate term for him and his brother James. He called them the sons of thunder, I think in large part because of a little moment that happens in Luke chapter 9 where they're passing through uh, a Samaritan village and the Samaritans don't take kindly to them being there and they treat them rather poorly and so so this when John and his brother James look at Jesus and say, well, Lord, maybe we should just fire, uh, call fire down from heaven and consume them. <laughs> As if they could do that. But I mean, you know, that's, that was the mindset of, of John and his brother James. They were uh, rather vindictive individuals in their early days. But this is many years later. And now John is in his 90s. And he's known now as the disciple or the apostle of love. God has softened his heart. And in large part because, of course, the testimony and the ministry and the miracles and the salvation of Jesus. And so John now has been a follower of Christ since he was uh, in his early 20s or maybe even as a teenager. And now 60 years after the resurrection of Christ and Christ has ascended back to heaven, the Holy Spirit has come to the earth, filled all kinds of hearts of believers. And now John, 60 years later, is writing this book, having been through a whole lot. I mean, there's a, quite a history for this man. In fact, at one point, Emperor Domitian had him thrown into a boiling vat of oil in the Colosseum in front of thousands of people, and he escaped unscathed, unburned, and preached the entire time he was in that vat of oil, and God miraculously uh, rescued him. And as a result, it really bothers Domitian that he can't kill this guy, so he banishes him to an island as a slave to work the salt mines, the island of Patmos. And of course, God wasn't through with John, and that's why he had 
preserved his life, and he gets on this island of Patmos, and of course, that's where he receives the vision for the book of Revelation that now tells us and foretells us of all that's going to happen in the future days when Christ comes back and, and the new heaven and new earth and all the wonderful things in the book of Revelation. Uh, he receives that vision on that island of Patmos, but then after that, Domitian dies, and a couple years after those exiled years in Patmos, he finds himself back in Ephesus, and this is where these letters are originating from from the church of Ephesus to the Christians around, and they were meant to be circulated, as Pastor Jonathan told us a couple of weeks ago. And so there's an issue going on, and it's the issue of Gnosticism, a, a heresy that has arisen in the church. And just two generations after the resurrection of Christ, we've got all kinds of issues happening in the church. Now, if you read the book of Acts, you know that this is nothing new. It started pretty quickly because people are people, and sin is sin, and this is just what happens. Well, Gnosticism is now the issue of the day, and so John is writing these books in, com in, in com sort of a combative sort of spirit to refutiate or, or or, or dis dispute the argue and the heresy of uh, Gnosticism, as you have already been told from Pastor Jonathan. And so there's some themes that just sort of keep coming up in this book, lots and lots of similar themes. Uh, love God, love people, keep his commandments. God is love, God is light. And then you get to chapter five, and there's another prevalent theme, God is life. Now, keep those three things in mind because we're going to come back to them. But for now, I just want to talk to you about the marks of a believer. The marks of a believer. We just sang Christ be magnified. How can Christ be magnified in our lives? Well, there's many, many ways, but there's six right here in this chapter. And so I want you to think, put your thinking caps on for just a moment. Open in your Bibles to chapter 4 of 1 John and look at the last two verses, and then we're going to move into chapter 5. Now, remember, in ancient writings, there was no chapter and verse. They just sort of flowed together. And so that's why I want to pick it up in verse 20 of chapter 4. I didn't even tell the guys upstairs that I was going to do this. So, so this is why, if you don't see those first two verses up, that's why. I didn't warn them that I was going to do this. But look at verse 20 in chapter, uh, in chapter 4 of 1 John. If anyone says, and we're going to pick up right where Matt uh, Wilmington left off last week. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now look at the first verse of chapter 5. John makes two giant statements here. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So what are the marks of the believer? Well, it's real plain to see in this book that the first mark of a believer is that you simply love God. It's the greatest commandment to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the most obvious way, the most obvious mark of a believer. But secondly, that we love God's Son. Now, how do we do that? Well, first of all, you've got to believe in Him. So when John says this word, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, that's not just a, a, a casual word. It's not just the idea that you casually believe that God exists. I mean, James reminds us in his book that even the demons believe in God and they tremble. We say we believe in God and, and don't, right? So it's not just a casual 
belief. The word believe here is so much deeper than that. It really requires three things, faith, trust, and action. So when I say I believe in the Son of God, I believe in Jesus, it's not just that I believe he existed at one point. No, I believe in him enough to put all my faith, all my trust in him. So much so that I'm going to actively live for him. So the best way I can illustrate this is by simply looking at a, a chair. This chair right here, I can promise you, I've not sat in this chair. There's like 4,200 or something chairs in this building, and I've never sat on the second row on this first chair. Now, I can say I believe in this chair because it sure looks like a chair, probably smells like a chair. Yeah. <laughs> Has the shape of one, but I've never sat in it. So to really believe in this chair, it's going to require faith from my heart to believe that, first of all, it is a chair. Second of all, I'm going to have to trust that chair enough to actually try to sit in it. But I don't know it's going to hold me up until I actually sit down. And once I sit down, ah, now my belief is complete because I put faith, trust, and then an action towards it. And now it's proven itself to be true. It really is a chair that's capable of holding me up. And that's the way it works with Jesus when you believe in him. You believe he is who he says he is. You trust him enough to do what he says he will do. And then you take one step of faith towards him and he changes your life. It's that simple. So everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. You've been born again. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So now we see the third mark of a believer. You don't just love God. We don't just love God's son. We also love God's children. Whew, now this is where it gets a little tougher. It's easy to love God, he's perfect. It's easy to love Jesus, he saved our soul. But now you're telling me I gotta love other people? Mm. You know, church tradition holds that they would often take John when he was in his mid-90s. He died at like 100 years old. But he, when he was in his mid-90s, they would often take him into other congregations. And the churches would be packed. They'd be so excited to hear this one apostle that's left alive, you know. He's, he's a witness to Christ, as he just says in chapter 1. And, and he's seen and heard the words of Jesus, laid his head on his chest at the Lord's Supper. I mean, this is the man right here. And now he's in his 90s, and he's still alive. And he would come to these villages and the places would be packed because they couldn't wait to hear the words of this great apostle. And, and they would literally carry him in and prop him up in a, in a stool or in a chair of some sort. And then he would begin to speak. And he would only say five words. And here's what he would say. Little children, love one another. Can you imagine if you walked 15 miles from out of town to this little village because you're going to get to see the apostle of Jesus and you get there and you're like, here he goes, that's him, that's him, that's him. Okay, what's... little children love one another and you're like, yeah, okay. And then he walks off. And he did this several times and finally one of the people that was carrying him around said, man, why don't you say any more? That's it, little children love one another. And here was John's response. If that's all they do, that is enough. 
Wow. You know, it's difficult to love others, isn't it? Especially the ones we don't like. Sometimes it feels impossible. It really does take a, a, a special work of God's spirit working in our heart to be able to love some people. I mean, it takes agape love. We, we cannot manufacture agape love. Agape love is God's love. It is a love that goes beyond just a feeling or a, or a friendship. It's a love that's deeper than that. It's the love that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that is kind and patient and everlasting and eternal and really quite indescribable. Because you see, in just the chapter before, John tells us that God is love. So God didn't just have love. He, he's the essence of love. He, he is love. That's one of his attributes. He, he, he is, is the embodiment of all that is love. So before the world was created, there was love. And then one day Jesus said, to glorify my son, I'm going to create an earth and a, and, a, and a species of humans on there. And their sole purpose is to bring glory to the son. And then the son came to this earth to bring glory to the father. You can see all these things written from Jesus himself. And it's all one big display of love. So your life, my life, our existence is caught up in something bigger than just ourselves. We are caught up in this circle, this great display of the love of God for human beings and the, the love of God for his own son to glorify him. And our responsibility as believers is to live a life that does just that. So God is the originator of this whole idea of love. He's the embodiment of love itself. And so Paul reminds us in Ephesians that we are to be imitators of this God who is love. In verse 2 of Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says this, walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, we are to be a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So what really helps is to see people through the lens of God's love. Look at people the way God looks at people. And when you look at people the way God looks at people, then it makes it a little easier to love the ones that you don't like. So one of the ways you know you love God is that we genuinely love people. That's what John is saying here. And when we have allowed God's love to permeate our lives, it makes loving others so much easier. When we were in London, we felt like we had to go see Herod's department store because it's pretty famous, right? Well, we get over there, and that place is huge. takes up an entire city block. And I noticed that on the sixth floor, because one of my goals was to buy some new cologne on this trip. And so I get there, and I noticed that on the sixth floor of Herod's department store, it is nothing but colognes and perfumes. The entire floor. I couldn't believe it. So I go up there, and I must have put on 18 different colognes. I, I was out of places to spray because I was trying them all. You know, I sprayed here, sprayed here. And then I get down the stairs because I separated from my wife. And, of course, as we separated in the store, I know she probably made the same prayer I did. Oh, Lord Jesus, please help her not to find anything expensive. <laughs> and so I'm walking, and I get back downstairs, and I'm like, hey, do you like this one? She's like, yeah, I like that one. I'm like, do you like this one? No, I don't like that one. Okay, well, smell my elbow. I smell. So how about this, right? And I had sprayed stuff everywhere, and I walked out of the sixth floor, <laughs> and, I, and I'm having her smell. I can't remember which ones they sprayed. I forgot to get all the little cards they give you, you know? So I couldn't remember even which cologne to buy. But one thing I noticed was when I left that floor, I smelled like the floor. I did. 
So when you go into a perfume store, you come out of the store smelling like the perfume because your environment affects how you look and how you smell. Folks, God is love. And if you're not loving, it's because you're not hanging out with God. You can claim to love God if you want to, but if you really want to love God, then you're going to end up smelling like Him, acting like Him, and loving like Him. So I got a little homework for you today. When you go to lunch or go home, why don't you just take five minutes with your family members and come up with about four or five different ways you can love your neighbor as yourself. Come up with about four or five different creative ways that you can love the people around you that aren't so lovable. Maybe it's just to mow their lawn without them asking. If anybody would like to do that for me, I'll be more than glad to take your offer. Maybe it's uh, wash their car. Maybe it's something a little deeper. Maybe it means send them a little thank you note or just a note of encouragement. Maybe bake them some cookies. The small stuff that just simply displays a little love for the people around you. And listen, you can't love everybody, but you can love somebody every day. And the world is desperate, desperate for our love. Real, genuine, agape love. And by the way, love is a decision. You can love people you don't like simply because you choose to do so, right? Listen to what Tony Evans says. Love is the decision to compassionately, righteously, and responsibly seek the well-being of another. So let's review before we move on. To love God means you seek his glory. And the more glory of God you seek, the more you are loving God. The more compassion to others you give, the more you are loving people. And when God sees you loving people, it glorifies him. When you glorify God, it's, it will cause you to love people more intentionally. And on and on and on, the circle of love goes. It's really the circle of life based upon a life lived well and in love with Jesus. You see, so you love God, your love of God means you love people. When you love people, you're glorifying God. See what I'm saying? Now, it seems to me that if the church would get a little bit more serious about loving others, we could see an eternal difference in our community. You can go to church every day of your life until you're blue in the face. But without love, it's just an empty service. You just sung a few songs and walked out of here and accomplished nothing. We have to love as a way of life. It's the absence of love, folks, that's kept the church separate, separated and segregated all these years. It's the absence of love that has tarnished the grace of God in the mind of the unbeliever. It's the absence of love that's driving a wedge of unbelief and dissension right down the middle of so many of our churches and so many of our families. Folks, the number one thing people need to say in this community about Thomas Road is, wow, it's not about the music. Wow, it's great music. No, that's not the number one thing we need to have people saying about this church. It's not about, wow, don't we love Pastor Jonathan? And we do love Pastor Jonathan, but that's not the number one thing people need to be saying about this church. It's not about our fantastic children's ministry, and it is fantastic, but that's not the thing people should be talking about. It shouldn't be talking about the youth department, all the mission work, all the TRO stuff. We got so much going on, but the thing that people should be talking about with Thomas Road is this. Wow! They love one another so much. The love in that church is indescribable. That's what people need to be talking about. My neighbor goes to that church and is, I just feel that he loves me. Because Jesus said, that's how they know we're disciples. Not by our t-shirts, not by our TV programs, 
not by our great songs, but by our love. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, Jesus said. By this, people will know that you're my disciples. So genuine love for God's people reflects a genuine love for God. And a genuine love for God is reflected in our genuine love for people. So what's the marks of a believer? Well, we love God. We love God's son. We love God's children. Here's another one. We obey his commandments. Look at verse 2 and verse 3. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments. Pretty straightforward. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. John said in chapter 14, verse 15, he was just quoting Jesus in his epistle when Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Now, I love that little phrase, his commandments are not burdensome. Because, you see, God's commandments give life. His commandments are not troublesome or they burdensome. They're actually helpful and life-giving, right? God's commands are not meant to bind us into a life of, of burden or boredom. They're meant to provide us a guide by which to live a healthy and fulfilling life. But also, God's commandments provide freedom. You know, God's commandments, they limit our freedom in some areas so that we can experience a greater freedom in most important areas. See, the great heresy of John's day in the church was Gnosticism, but the great heresy of our day in our culture is relativism. Because people want to have their cake and eat it too. We want to be able to believe whatever we want, define truth for ourselves, and determine what's right and wrong based off our own version of morality versus what God has to say about morality. And because of that, we have this issue in the church that is overwhelming our society, the issue of relativism. Now, relativism is, is not a god, so to speak, but it's a, it's a philosophy. The god in, in relativism gets to be you. Webster's defines it like this, a view that ethical truths depend on the individuals and groups holding them. You get to make up your own version of truth. So the relativists would say that they're free to do whatever they want, believe whatever they want, and they base their truth on anything they want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, right? In that case, you're just fine. So the one absolute of relativism is that there's no absolutes. Now that in itself is an absolute statement, but we won't tell them that because we'll spoil their fun. <laughs> the one sin in relativism is intolerance. So as long as you're not bothering me and I'm not bothering you, we can believe and do whatever we want. This is the freedom that a relativist so cherishes. The problem is that kind of freedom gets abused because we're making up our own system morality. And when we do that, we end up making mistakes. And we abuse the freedom, which in turn traps us in sin. And so the freedom that you thought you had is now actually completely binding you. See, all freedom comes at a cost. Freedom's never free. To experience freedom in one area requires sacrifice in another. You cannot have your cake and eat it too, literally. Like, if I left here today and had chocolate cake for lunch, 
simply because I have the freedom to do so. And then I go home this afternoon and I have chocolate cake for an afternoon snack. And then tonight I have chocolate chip cookies. And in the morning for breakfast, I might get me some waffles and some syrup. And then on and on and on it goes. And I live on this constant diet of nothing but sugar and things that are bad for me. Well, what's going to happen is, is I'm going to end up way fatter than I already am. And I'm going to be in a situation where I'm completely obese. And the freedom now that I was exercising to eat whatever I want is now limiting the freedom I used to have to golf and play racquetball and, 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 and play catch with my sons or do whatever I like to do. And so because of eating nothing but bad stuff from my body, I've ended up in a situation to where in exercising this one freedom, I am now limited to have the freedom to do anything else. Suddenly I look up and I realize that my freedom to eat limited the freedoms to live, you see. So freedom goes away not only when it is taken from us, but also when it is abused by us. I have to constrain one freedom in order to enjoy the other freedom that is much greater. Now, we do this in all areas of our life, with the way we spend our money, the way we eat, business practice, all kinds of things. You have to constrain some freedoms that you have in order to enjoy a greater freedom on the other side, right? But what about the area of sin? Are you free to just do whatever you want? Well, sure. But you better remember that your sins will find you out and you will eventually have to deal with the consequences because all of it comes with a price. So his commandments are light and they're not burdensome in the sense that we recognize that they're for our benefit. So our motivation for obeying God's commandments and loving others should simply be because we love him and we really do want to please him. That's it. Anything else runs the danger of entering into this realm of legalism. Now, when I was in high school, I was one legalistic dude. I was very prideful about the fact that I didn't drink, I didn't dance, I didn't cuss, I didn't chew, I didn't go out with the girls who do, all those things. I was very proud of this. The problem is my motivation for doing all that was not because I love Jesus. It's because I loved myself. And I liked the way people thought I was so moral. And there's people in this room, you're just like that. And that's legalism. It's not love. I remember we used to do this thing on Saturday mornings where we'd all get on a bus and go witnessing in the neighborhoods. And I can tell you right now, 90% of us were not witnessing in those neighborhoods because we loved those neighbors. We were earning points to go on a free ski trip in February. The motivation was not love. The motivation was legalism. And I just wonder how many of you live like that? Listen, the reason you don't do things in your life is not because of a rule book. It's because you've fallen in love with the one who changed your life. Do you see the difference? And it wasn't until I discovered the real love of Christ, a love that says, go wherever you want to do, do whatever you want to do, but, but I've given you this freedom because I love you. When I learned how deep and how powerful and how indescribable the love of God was for me, but that he also paid the ultimate price of death for me, and it, it, it rocked my world. And I stopped living my life for Christ for the sake of admiration of other believers. And I fell in love with Jesus. 
And I realized that my lifestyle didn't change, but my motivation completely did. And I started living my life for Jesus and doing the right things in my life because I simply want to please the one who loved me first. And when your life is motivated by loving Jesus and loving God, it changes the way you look at how you view Christianity. You no longer look at Christianity as a list of rules of don'ts and do's. You just look at it as, a, as two big do's. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. You want to get freed up from legalism? Fall in love with Jesus. It's that simple. So, let me give you another one. We are overcomers of this world. Wow. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that we have. He, that he has overcome the world because of our faith. That word victory, by the way, is the word Nike. It's the same word that Phil Knight got uh, for, use, for naming his shoe company, Nike. It's a really cool word. It stands for victory. You see, once you're his, you are his forever. Nothing can pluck you out of his hand. And you're victorious, not because of what you did, but because of what he did. And you can live a life of victory and overcoming sin and, 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 and the shame and the guilt of all of it simply because of what he did. You are now resting in the palm of Jesus and nothing can take you out. I love that. You're under the shadow of his wings. And all it requires is just a little bit of faith. So the key to overcoming the world is faith. We've been singing about it this morning. And not just an initial faith, but an abiding faith. Day in and day out, a long obedience in the same direction. It's a, it's a life that abides in Christ that overcomes the world. We, uh, <clears throat> and I'll close with this, but we, and I've got so much more, but I'll close with this. We, we, we planted this garden um, before, before we left for England and the little tiny little sprouts and plants, you know. And uh, I, I thought, well, you know, if it rains and, and, and she puts enough fertilizer in there, maybe it'll, they'll survive. Well, it apparently rained a lot while we were gone. And, and uh, when we came back, uh, I got a picture of what it looks like now. It's grown into this overgrown mess. I told my wife last night, I was like, you know, it's kind of a picture of the church when the church is healthy and thriving. It's really messy, but it's amazing. And that's kind of, that's what it looks like right now. We got to figure out how to prune this deal. But um, yesterday we picked the first fruit from the plant right there. You know, it's, imp and, and, and I realized a, a few things about gardening. First of all, it's as important to weed the garden as it is to plant it. Because con conversion as a believer is life-changing and wonderful, but it, it's just important to keep the soul as it is to convert the soul. So just like a garden, yes, it starts with planting the seed, but, but it's just as important to, to weed and water and maintain it. Because if you don't, does the cucumber plant cease to be a, a cucumber plant? No, it won't, but weeds will eventually take over and choke the life out of the, t uh, out of the cucumber, right? So you've got to continue to take care of it. And if we fail to water it and you the plant shrivels up and dies, no longer producing the fruit that it was meant to be. And the whole reason for planting the seed in the first place was so that it would bear fruit. Now, here's the difference. Here's the issue. We're talking about abiding in Christ. What I did yesterday is I pulled this cucumber from the vine. And so as long as this cucumber sits like this, it'll survive a little while. But after a while, it's going to shrivel up and be, um, lose its flavor and, and be gross. Right? But if I was to keep it connected to the vine, it would continue to grow. And, and, and it continues to get bigger and, and, and more juicy and more flavorful. 
because that's what happens when the fruit stays connected to the vine. And that's what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 15. If you'll just abide in me and I in you, just as the branch is unable to produce fruit for itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. So here's the secret to overcoming the world. Stay connected to Jesus. Don't leave the vine and run all over creation thinking you can do this on your own. You just can't. It's Jesus alone. So, with that in mind, we'll close with this. The last point is simply this. Because of all this, you can live in confidence. I write these things to you, John says, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. Mm. The things that breaks your confidence as a believer is sin. And when you stop abiding in faith, isn't it wonderful to know that we are held in the hands of God and if we will just stay faithful to him, he will bless our lives and we will be overcomers in this world. But also, we can know without a shadow of a doubt in our minds that we have eternal life in him. He is so good and he is so gracious. So John talks about God being our light. He talks about God being love. In this chapter, he talks about God being and Jesus being the source of life. It all comes from him. And all three of those things are crucial to our existence in the world. They're incredible gifts. So this little boy was standing outside of a bakery store shortly after World War II. And he was staring at this bakery. Bombs had been exploding all over that city for a long time in London. But the war was now over and the city's beginning to rebuild and stores are beginning to open again. And... He's standing there because he's homeless. He's lost his family, lost his home. This homeless little boy staring at this bakery. Because you see, they just brought out some fresh donuts. He doesn't have anything to pay for a donut. He's poor, he's homeless. And around the corner comes a soldier. The soldier sees him standing there. And the soldier bends over and he can see that this boy wants a donut. He says, you want one of those donuts? And the little boy shakes his head. The soldier goes in. <laughs> he didn't just buy the, the child one donut. He bought him a dozen. He brings out a dozen donuts and gives them in the hand of this child. And that little boy looked up at that soldier and he said, Wow, sir, are you God? Well, of course we know he isn't. But in that moment, he was a reflection of the light of God. See, folks, if we'll display the light of God by glorifying his son... And if we will display the love of God by loving others, and if we will display a life that's lived for God and overcoming victory, then I promise you, I promise you, we will have very little difficulty in pointing others to God. So live a life of victory and live those marks of a true believer. Can we go to the Lord? Father, we love you. We are grateful for the life we have in you. We are grateful, God, that you've given us this salvation and this hope and this peace that is everlasting. But Lord, may we love you with all of our hearts. May we fall deeper in love with your son and give him glory through everything we do. And may we, Lord, display that love for you in the way we love the people around us. And God, give us victory to overcome the world. And in the process of overcoming the world, Lord, may we deepen our faith in you 
And as we deepen our faith in you, Lord, we remind us every day that we can live in the confidence of knowing that you will hold us forever. And one day when we get to glory, we will look back on these days and fondly remember how you used us each and every day. In your name we pray. The altar is open. I know it's a moment late, so as you leave, just know that we have pastors down front. If you've never met the Lord Jesus, it starts there by believing in him. Come take one of these pastors by the hand and simply say, sir, would you introduce me to Jesus? I don't know him. But for the rest of us, this book is written to Christians. As you leave, remember those marks of the believer and truly, truly, truly work towards loving people the way God wants you to love it. All right? You're dismissed. God bless you, everybody. I want to thank you for joining us today. If you've never come to the place of recognition of being a sinner and needing a Savior, you can do so right now. Believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again to give you eternal life, just ask Him to save you today. If you would like to talk further about that and what God has done in the giving of His Son, Jesus, we'd love to chat with you. I would encourage you to email us at the address listed on the screen, pastor at trbc.org. We would love to connect with you and help you begin this brand new journey with Jesus Christ. If you would like to help contribute to our ministry as we take this message of the gospel around the world, go to the link on the screen today and help us help others with this amazing message of God's love.